0: So many of you have given significant, hard-earned sums of money to support the ministry here at UBC. Many others have given countless hours of service to see the ministries go forward. But I have a question. How do you know that it's going toward a good end? In other words, how do you know that I'm just not some spiritual shyster, right? But the real deal. For nobody intentionally supports Right, pretenders and charlatans, and yet history is strewn with them. So you have your, your miracle doctors with their wonder drugs. You have your investment gurus promising impossible returns. And then there are the religious kind, right? the folks like Simon the Magician from Acts 8. Those folks have been around for millennia, and some of them are easier to spot So they sponsor spectacular TV programs with their throngs of thousands and the the preachers speak of divine healing and supernatural blessing all for a small donation. And then the guy heads off stage in his Gulfstream jet heading to his palatial palace. And yet for many it's harder because many start off well. They work hard their motives seem to be in the right place. Their ministries flourish. And yet somewhere along the way, something goes wrong. Is it the success? Right? Is it the celebrity status? Is it the, the feeling of invincibility? Is it the lack of accountability? Only God knows. But, I mean, just in this last year, how many prominent leaders have we seen fall? Men like Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias, or even Carl Lentz of Hillsong, New York City. Now to be clear, I don't point my finger at any of them. I don't mention them by name because I think in some way I am self-righteously better than they are, right? Jeremiah 17 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Or to quote from Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Rather, I mention it because with every high-profile fall comes a torrent of confusion, comes crises of faith, crises of confidence in the Lord. People are hurt. Many more people are led astray. So how can you spot genuine, authentic Christian ministries? Are there any marks to a healthy, God-honoring gospel ministry? Friends, that's the question I want us to be thinking about as we return this morning to our study in the book of First Thessalonians. Let me invite you there to turn there if you haven't already done so to the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 this morning. And if you don't happen to have a Bible, we provide them in the seatbacks before you. And I'm not sure, I forgot to look what page the passage is on. Is anyone, can anyone just call out the page? Okay, I'm he- I can't hear anyone clearly. Just call up my age. 986. Thank you, my lovely wife. 986. In the front row. All right. 986. So uh, you can look there. 986, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. And just if you are new to a Bible, just so you know, when I refer to a chapter number, that's the big bold number. When I refer to a verse number, that's the small superscript number. Now recall from last week, Thessalonica... Was the, it was the wealthiest, it was the most populous city um, in ancient Macedonia, which today would be sort of modern day northern Greece, modern day Macedonia, modern day sort of southern Bulgaria, that would all be the, the area, and Thessalonica was the prominent city. And Paul and Silas, uh, Silas and Timothy visited that city on their second missionary journey but it was they were just there a number of weeks, and yet during that time, they were able to plant a church, they were able to establish a good set of believers, and yet jealous Jews, we read from, from Acts 17 last week, ran them out of town. And so you've got this newly converted people that are now being sorely tested in the faith as Paul, their spiritual father, Silas and Timothy, have all had to leave. And it seems one of the tacks that Paul's detractors took once they left, was to try to undermine them and present Paul as some kind of preacher for profit. You know, traveling preachers, they would say, they come through hawking their spiritual wares all the time. Jesus as the promised Messiah. Come on, you guys know better than that. The guy was run out of town. Paul, tail between his legs. You haven't seen from him. You haven't heard from him. How long was he here after all? Not that long. And after a while, these young believers may be asking themselves, you know, oh, they got a point. We haven't heard from Paul. Maybe we got duped along the way. Maybe the joke is on us. And in response, Paul will pen chapters 2 and 3. So we're going to read them. Yes, both chapters, so go ahead and get comfy. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3. These were, just to be clear, the most significant words you will hear. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out and displeased God and deposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we can bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, friends, I think what we have here is a beautiful picture of Paul's own pastoral heart. You know, we can think of Paul as the the dogmatic theologian, right? Paul is the consummate polemic, cold and precise in his doctrinal formulations, And yet, here we get another picture, and I would argue an even truer picture, into a man as he opens his heart, as he conveys his emotions, as he bears his own soul before them, and it's a deeply moving and compelling gospel picture and picture of gospel ministry. And I think you can just break those two chapters down like this. So in in chapter 2, 1 to 16... What do we have there? But Paul in two one to sixteen, he's defending his ministry while he was among them. So while he was with them for those weeks, he was there two one to sixteen. He's defending the ministry while he was with them, and then in two seventeen through three thirteen, Paul defends his own ministry since he's been apart from them, while he's been away from them. So that's sort of the basic breakdown. And I think as we look at it more closely, we're going to see three marks of healthy gospel ministry. And I want us to look first at the message, I want us to look second at the motive, and I want us to look third at the manner. So we're going to think about the the message, right, the what of gospel ministry, the motive, the why, and the manner, the how. And now a passage like this is admittedly most directly applicable for those thinking about pastoral ministry, as Paul was a pastor to them, those thinking about missions as those who go and and seek to plant churches and pastor young believers. But because this captures Paul's own heart to make disciples, and because, as we've been thinking about somewhere the last year, right, the call to make disciples is not just a call to some, but it's a call to all. All Christians are called to make disciples. Much of this passage also, by extension, it's applicable to us. So first, let's think about the message, the message. Because if you check the latest blogs, right, tune into the latest podcast, scroll through your Twitter feed, there are many who will espouse Christianity. But how can you tell what's worth tuning into and what's worth tuning out? Well, I want us to see three things about faithful, um, a faithful message, a faithful message in gospel ministry, and the first is that. The message is God's word, not man's words. So the message of faithful ministry is about God's words, not man's words. So there in 2.2, Paul will say there, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, We had boldness in our God to declare to you what? The gospel of God. And we're going to keep hearing that phrase. Perhaps you picked it up when I was reading in chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says he was delighted to share not just his own personal musings while he was with them, but what? The gospel of God. In 9, chapter 2, verse 9, what did they proclaim? The gospel of God to you. In chapter 2, verse 13, what did the Thessalonians accept? Well, they accepted it not as the word of men, but rather as what it really is, the word of God. And then down in 3, 2, that same word of God, the gospel of God, is referred to as the gospel of Christ, chapter 3, verse 2. So Paul here is at great pains with the Thessalonians to remind them that what he preached to them, they were not his words. These were God's words. And the picture is that of a herald, right? And what do heralds do? Well, you've got a herald, and a herald speaks on behalf of a king, a sovereign. So the herald doesn't go back to his desk and think, you know, what grand pronouncement would I like to make today? No, heralds receive something from their sovereign, and then they relay that to all who have ears to hear, to all in the kingdom. And that's exactly what Paul has done. He has broadcasted the message of his sovereign, not his words, but God's words. And the message Paul preached was that there is only one living and true God, which is why so many of these Gentiles in Thessalonica will be under great persecution Because everyone took for granted there were many gods, and they've turned away from those idols, as we thought of last week. And they're worshiping the one true God, the God who's made the world and everything in it. And yet, part of the gospel message that Paul preached is that this glorious God who's made us, well, we have inexplicably, we have turned away from this God. We have chosen our own path. We have chosen our own way. And that's what the Bible calls Sin. And friends, sin is the mad career that you and I have been about all of our lives. Distrusting God at his word, regularly pursuing our own ways. And the consequences are tragic, right? Pain and sorrow and death. And so it is. We see the consequences of sin to this day. But in his love, Paul shared, right? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. The son that was promised The son that has come, the son that lived perfectly according to God's law, that died sacrificially upon a cross, that rose victoriously over the grave, so that all those who would repent of their own sin would see their rebellion and would turn away from it and turn to this one true God in Christ. They can be saved. They can be forgiven of their own sins. So if you've come as a non-Christian this morning, Friend, understand, that's the good news of Christianity. What I just shared with you, the same things Paul was sharing. And to those Gentile audiences, and even to many of those Jewish audiences, that was hard to swallow. And it may be hard for you to swallow. But friends, recognize that it is the only message that saves. Right? You cannot save yourself through your good works. As hard as you might try, only Christ can save you through his. That God is not about making this short life your best life, but rather in the gospel, what do we find? That he's preparing us in this life, and even these Thessalonians, for the next life, to be with him, to celebrate with him, to reside in his presence. My non-Christian friend, the decision you face is whether or not you are going to hear this gospel message and receive it with joy or reject it, walk away from it. And friend, if you were tempted in any way to reject it and to walk away from it, I would caution you for when has it ever turned out well to turn away from God, to distrust God and his word? But friend, The second thing I want us to see about this gospel message is that Paul's focus was on suffering and not success. It was a message that really highlighted suffering and not success. When I mean success, I mean sort of worldly success, as we might think about it. So did you notice as I read how often Paul includes the promise of suffering? So he speaks of his own suffering in chapter 2, verse 2, how he had suffered and been shamefully treated. In 2.14, he says of the Thessalonians, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea? Well, how were they imitators? He goes on to say, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul's helping them see right there, their suffering is actually part of what marks them out as a true gospel church. And then chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Paul's going to send Timothy back to them to check on them. Why? So that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. Right? Destined for this, Paul says. Destined. Friends, affliction is no accident for the Christian. And this is what Paul was at pains to make clear with them. He told them beforehand, he was very upfront, very forthright about the kind of suffering that would come upon Christians. You know, in our suffering, what's so often our instinct? Our instinct is to assume maybe somewhere along the way we did something wrong or maybe for some reason we have incurred God's displeasure. He's angry at us. He is frustrated with us. Or maybe we assume God's not being faithful to us when we go through suffering. We can often assume that such sufferings are in fact a denial of the gospel. And yet for Paul, such such sufferings, they weren't a denial of the gospel. Those sufferings were actually a confirmation of the gospel. They served to confirm the true word. For if we suffer with him, then we shall also be what with him? Glorified. With him, Romans 8:17. You know, this week I attended my my kids' swim banquet, and as each senior who graduated shared about the last year, each senior shared, and there was this common theme of suffering. They had a new coach this year, the swim team did from New Jersey. And this coach, he works them. The first conference call, he gets all the parents on, classic jersey. He's like, Okay, listen, I've gotten to know your kids. It's clear that I've come to coach. It's not clear they've come to swim. I'm like, well, that's one way to open up. All right. <laughs> I'm like, I think I can help you a little bit with the culture down here at any rate. He, he was working these kids. So there were weeks in December when William was swimming almost 30 miles a week. Now, some of you are like, I can't even run 30 miles a week. I can't dream of doing that, let alone swim 30 miles in a week. And was it because the coach wanted to punish them? Was it because he liked to inflict pain? Well, yeah, when you're there in the water suffering and about to puke, you're probably thinking he likes pain. He gets some twisted delight out of it. But the coach knew what he was doing. He was breaking them down in order to build them up stronger and faster. And come spring, the kids were flying. And state records were dropping left and right. In December, every single kid was doubting wondering why they were doing this, doubting the goodness of their new coach. But come April, they knew. They understood what he was doing, and they could stand at the end of a season and thank him for it. Friends, it's a little bit like that with us. We may not understand what's happening in the moment. We we may not know how we're going to endure it. But we mustn't doubt that God is going to see us through it. That one day we'll even be able, in ways we cannot fathom, we will even be able to praise him for it. For the pain that so hurts us today will become the eventual servant of our glory and joy eternally. But a third thing I want you to see about this message It is about godliness and not about worldliness. The message Paul preached was about godliness and not worldliness. So his exhortation in chapter 2 verse 12 was that they walk in a manner worthy of God. Notice how he closes in 3.12. His prayer was that they increase and abound in love for one another and for all that they would, 3.13, be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The gospel message always accepts us where we are. It just never leaves us where we are. Not a true gospel. It doesn't do that. The true gospel picks us up. It cleans us off. It clothes us and then presents us spotless and radiant. A true gospel changes us, makes us more like Christ. Christ. And that's exactly where Paul's going to go in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. He's going to go there. But here's what I want you to see in the midst of so many other sort of competing Gospels that are out there. Many messages that promise life. How do you know what's worth your time? Compare it to the Gospel that Paul has presented to these Thessalonians. For if it spends precious little time about God and yet spends lots of time on man. If it speaks very little of the life to come, it instead fills all with the hope of the here and now. If it glosses over sin and encourages you to be all that you can be. If it soft-pedals suffering and isn't overly concerned with how you live in the midst of such suffering, if it's a gospel that seems to be regularly changing its tune with each new public opinion poll, it is not a biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is the gospel of God, which comes through the messengers of God, by the power of God, to the people of God, for the holiness of God, and finally, right for the glory of God. And If you missed all that, it doesn't matter. It's God-centered. That's the point. This biblical gospel is deeply God-centered That Paul preached. And friends, that brings us secondly to the motive. To the motive. And I wonder if you've ever considered why some athletes go the distance and others don't. So, because I love to pick on sports that none of you ever watch, right? The Tour de France is about to to come through the summer and cyclists are already gearing up for that big race, that grueling race. And back in 1997, there was a, a German named Jan Ulrich who won the race. He was only 23. At that time, 23 is super young, five to 10 years before your prime in cycling. And given his youth, given his tremendous talent, many predicted he would be the most dominant cyclist of my generation. He used to often show up to the tour half out of shape. He'd work himself into shape the first week and a half, and then he'd crush it the last week and a half. But that didn't happen. Jan Ulrich never won another tour. Most of you probably don't even know who Jan Ulrich is. Most of you have probably never even heard of his name, and you're like, what's the point of this? Well, that's the point. What happened to Jan Ulrich? Friends, what happens to so many in ministry or in missions? People with tremendous talent, people with great charisma, with unusual giftings, and yet all to see it just come crashing down. I think there could be any number of things, but I think one of the main things that tends to happen is they they develop a motive problem, right? They may have started with the right message, but somewhere along the way, either due to the pressures or the pleasures of man, their motives changed, or their motives, those original motives finally caught up with them, and the results are tragic. So what's the motive for faithful gospel work? We see it right in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Our motive first always ought to be the pleasure of God. The pleasure of God. So Paul, you know, in our own language, Paul would be saying in so many words, listen, uh, I didn't come to you in order to deceive you. There was nothing deceptive about my methods while I was with you. I didn't engage in any bait and switch tactics. Right? I didn't manipulate you by concealing the cost of Christianity with you. I was honest with you because my motive was finally to please God and not you is what Paul is saying. And he's going to back it up in verses 5 to 12 of chapter 2 by talking about how he lived among them, which just underscored that his motives were pure. And yet, friends, so many of us, how do we live? We live under that searing eye of public perception. We fear what others think of us. We fear what others say about us. Or we fear what we think they're thinking about us, or what we think they might be saying about us. In other words, we live and we die in the mouths of men. And when that happens, we become fearful. We become like our own little PR agency. And we are constantly doing damage control, constantly seeking to protect our own image. And so the boss pops his head in through the door and says, hey, have you completed that assignment? And without thinking about it, you're like, yeah, almost done. When in reality, you haven't even started the assignment. But you don't want to be seen as lazy and incompetent. Right? Instinctively, you act in the fear of man to protect your own image. And thus we become defined by people's opinions of us and not by God's own opinion of us. And friends, living to please man is its own form of slavery because we are perpetually held captive to the thoughts and opinions of others, and that is exhausting, and yet it's how so many of us live our lives. And yet to seek the pleasure of God, well, that is to be freed from the tyranny of public opinion and public perception when we can genuinely fear God and not man. And friends, recognize that's what Paul says the Jews were actually unable to do. So if you look down to chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says he pleased God up in verse 4. But that same word for please is used negatively down in 2.15 of the Jews, who we read killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and deposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. It's part of what Juliana read from from John earlier, how they desired the the pleasure of man. They desired the honor of men, not the honor of God. And why did the Jews do this? Well, part of what Paul was likely teaching them was, if if you know Matthew 23, Jesus predicted these very things would happen, that they would kill God's prophets and teachers, they would flog them in the synagogues and the rest, which is exactly what's happening to Paul there in Macedonia But Matthew 23 is also clear that they did this because of their own heart's desires. Their motivations, the Jewish motivation, that was the issue. They all do their deeds, Jesus says, so as to be seen by others. They didn't care about pleasing God. Finally, they cared about the praise of men, which is why Jesus would call them blind guides. Our motives... In everything, Paul is saying must be God-centered. Whether you are a pastor or a gospel worker or a student or a friend or a spouse, in all of those capacities, the first questions you should be asking, they should be not how will this impact me, but rather, how does this promote God? Not how does this impact my reputation, how does this promote God's own reputation? Not, again, how does this impact me, but how does this reflect upon God? It's not how do I gain. It's not in this moment, how can I benefit in the moment from this decision, but how does the gospel gain in this moment from this decision? How does my church gain in this moment, in this decision? That's the kind of God-centeredness that Paul had that he's calling these believers to have. And those are the kind of questions that motivate a godly ministry. Because if we're not motivated by God, if that's not our motivation, we will use others. We will manipulate others. We will exploit others for our own ends. And the consequences are catastrophic. And sadly, we see it all the time. Paul's motive was the pleasure of God. In the pursuit of others. It was a pleasure that motivated him to pour into others. So look down at chapter 2, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. The ESV is the funniest way of making sweet things awkward. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Right? Paul didn't just give them the gospel. Paul gave them himself. He invested himself in them. He deposited part of himself in them. Because to truly love God, as Paul displays, to truly love God is to long to see the love of God in others. And that's how he closes chapter 2, verse 19. He says, what is our hope? Or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you, that's emphatic there in the Greek, you are our glory and joy. You know, that crown of boasting, he's referencing there that ancient laurel wreath, which would have been given to victors, right, at athletic games. So you can think of the laurel wreath like an ancient trophy. You know, we have these nice, big, tall, massive things, right? Football, right? That's a sport I'm learning, right? You've got these... Huge, heavy trophies. Players holding them up high, hoping you're not going to drop them. Maybe Tom Brady's tossing one from boat to boat. That's another story. At any rate, this, this laurel wreath, that was like an ancient trophy. And we want to line our own shelves with awards. We live our lives often amassing such awards. Pictures and mementos of our own accomplishments. Friends, Paul... His wall was lined with the portraits of people. Those were his trophies in Christ. People were Paul's greatest accomplishment. They were his spiritual trophies. Which begs the question, friends, members of UBC in particular, what are you laboring for? What are you laboring for? Salesmen, Scholar, student of the year, right? I recognize we've got some folks that meet that description in here. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you long, perhaps, for the power, for the prestige of a corner office? And yet, the question that we have to ask is, you know, as we labor after these things, are we finally just laboring after a business that won't last are we laboring after a body that's just gonna give way, after a mind that will one day fail? Or are we investing in people that will last for eternity? You know, I often have to ask myself as I think back at like accomplishments, and I place too much weight in those accomplishments, and I'll I'll be thinking, you know, I, who cares about water polo? No one cares about my water polo career, or what exploits I had in high school. No one finally cares about the college I went to, the degree I had, my GPA. You're not asking me that, and if you did, I'd be like, that's a little weird. That was a long time ago. I'm not defined by those things. We shouldn't be finally defined by those things. That's not to say this life and what we spend time giving our lives to is unimportant. It's not to say that we're not to work as under the Lord in all that we do. We should And yet, so many of us are tempted to measure our lives by the wrong metrics. The wrong metrics. For Paul, it was people who mattered most, not professional achievements. For Paul, what mattered most was whether or not others were growing spiritually. Not whether they were first growing professionally or academically or athletically, or financially. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, Jesus said, and yet forfeit his soul? What does it profit you to gain the whole world? And as a consequence, perhaps not just lose your own soul, but what about all the souls who are watching you? What about all the souls who sit under you? What about all the souls who are following you and from your own life might conclude from you that Christ is a box you check. He is not a person to be cherished. That church is a thing you do, not a body and a family to whom you belong. That relationships are finally there for what you can gain from them and not what you're meant to give to them. Member of UBC, what motivates you? And does it reflect any of the motivations that reflect Paul here? The pleasure of God and the pursuit of others by pouring yourself into others. Friends, it's why not just pastors, not just missionaries, but all Christians ought to care for the spiritual health of others. You know, those who are parents, we have such high hopes for our own children. Friend, do you have any hopes for your children in the faith? Do you have any hopes for them? Or your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith? Or your young sons and daughters in the faith? Could they be going through hardship and you're like, well, I hope they make it through? Do you have any hopes for them? Are you at all grieved by their spiritual defeats? Do you rejoice with them in their spiritual victories? Do we even feel a part of those victories and defeats with them? You know, it's why I was so grateful for Haley's a discipling talk she gave at the Women's Institute yesterday, so I wasn't there, Uh, but yeah, you're like, okay, great. It's a Women's Institute. Yes, thank you. I wasn't there, but I did read it. I read over it in advance. It was wonderful. I heard wonderful things about it. If you want to think more about that, especially if it doesn't apply just to women, um, you can go listen to that. I'm sure you can find that online, that talk she gave yesterday. Genuine disciples disciple others. That's what Paul is helping us see. Because Christ didn't inaugurate his kingdom, right, with some mass media marketing approach. He didn't hire product strategists. He didn't leverage the power of social media. What did Christ do? The same thing Paul did. Paul learned it from him. What did he do? He gathered with a small group of people, men and women, had many personal engagements with them, taught them, poured into them over a number of times, some case years Right, It's what Paul himself did, Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works with me. Right, right there, what's Paul doing? And in pouring into others, he is proclaiming the word. He is teaching them obedience to that word, which involves warning and admonition, encouragement, right? And exhortation, we're going to see from chapter 2. He's investing in others with the goal that he presents them mature in that word. Because Paul's not trying to make disciple of himself, but disciples of Christ. He is not laboring to make those people necessarily more like him, but finally more like Jesus. And friend, you don't need a program for that. You need a Bible, you need a loving heart, and you need a lot of patience. And that's it. It's what motivated Paul. Chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Because that's what motivates genuine Christians Question if you are a Christian, does that in any way describe your motivations? We've thought about the message, we've thought about the motive, lastly, the manner. Let's think about the manner as we close. You know, it's often been said that to have a child is decide, it's to have a child is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body. And if you're a parent, you probably know that experience. I remember the, the first time I held our daughter, Paige, it was this odd mixture of sheer pride and terror. You know, at one level, I've, you know, new dad, I want to parade her around like a new schoolboy that's just got the coolest new toy. And yet, at another level, I'm feeling like I'm holding the trigger to like a nuclear weapon. And if I stumble in any way, like drop this or mess this up, like it's all going to go boom and it will be ugly. And so I remember when we put her in the car seat there at the hospital for the first time, trying to get her into that car seat, and spending like half the day making sure the padding was just right around the head. And I remember going down to the car, and I don't know how car seats work these days, but back then there was always a base that you had to secure in the seat, and you put the car seat into that base. So, man, I'm working on that base, trying to get that thing strapped in, and I think I pretty much tore my fingers off trying to get that thing strapped in tight but by the end it was more secure than Fort Knox right that that base wasn't going to move and by the time we left I think we addressed Paige in four outfits right then we get her home you're trying to rock her to sleep quiet her to sleep but we lose precious hours of sleep because you're like well she's she's on her back she's gonna get a flat head you're like we better go in there and turn over and then she's on her stomach like she's gonna stop breathing and so you just go back and forth and it's exhausting Now, the funny thing is, by the time the fourth baby comes around, we're sitting there like, hey, did anyone bring an outfit? No, just like take her naked out to the car. Oh, we don't have a car seat. Like, (laughs) call Uber, right? We'll just, she'll get home, all right. But the point is, you understand what I'm describing when I describe what it means to be a parent. Friend, that, that parental love is exactly what Paul felt toward these Thessalonians, his manner was parental you know look back to the text 2 7 he says his manner was gentle like what like a nursing mother taking care of her little children and then in 211 how did he deal with them like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you he says and then in 217 this is obscured a little bit by the esv But Paul says that we were torn away from you. Literally, that verb means, and actually the NIV, interestingly enough, is more literal than the ESV here, that word literally means we were orphaned from you. Paul's grabbing on that familial language, that parental language, and that he was deprived of his spiritual children when he was torn away, when they were orphaned from one another. And then in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, what do we see? He's protective like a parent, so he sends Timothy to them so that they might not be unsettled by their own trials and fall prey to the tempter. He's sacrificial with them as parents are, for not only does he give up Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2, but even back in 2, 9, he chooses not to work so as in no way to be a burden to any of them right he's anxious to be reunited with them twice we're told he longs to see them face to face 217 and 310 right his manner was parental because pastoral love ought to be parental love you know that image of a nursing mother is an arresting one and my guess is that if you open up a modern day church planting manual i'm thinking chapter 1 won't read love them like a nursing mom That's not my guess. Who is both male and as far as we know, single. We're not aware of any children Paul had. You know, when such images surprise us in the New Testament, often the key is in the Old Testament. And in this case, it's the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 15. God will say, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have on compassion? I think I typed it in wrong, so I'm going to go read it from actually from Isaiah. This is saves me usually a little bit of time when I'm not jumping around. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these, these mothers may forget, yet I, God, will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Such a sweet and tender love that the Lord has. Greater than the love of a nursing mother for his people. You know, so often in leadership, even in pastoral ministry, we're presented with these images of aggressive, authoritarian, even autocratic leaders. But Paul's notion of pastoral ministry is remarkably different. One that begins with gentleness. One that begins with tenderness. One that begins with kindness. Because that's how the Lord has treated us. I loved how Kevin prayed in the pastoral prayer, thinking of of the rod. Like God, like a rod of iron, can dash pottery to pieces, and yet he will not bruise that bended reed. Such a glorious and biblical picture of our God. You know, in today's polemic speech, when so many Christians, even so many Christian leaders, love to lob verbal grenades at their foes, and they do that, and then they congratulate themselves and pat themselves on the back for the courage to stand for the truth. I think we need to be reminded of this image, what Paul will later say in 2 Timothy 2.24, where pastors are not to be quarrelsome, But kind to everyone, able, that kind is actually a cognate of of what we find here, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, with gentleness. That doesn't mean shepherds, ministry leaders, right? Doesn't mean parents should idly sit by in the midst of danger. No, instead, like, we are to love like mothers and lead like fathers, That's part of the image Paul's giving us. You know, Calvin said pastors have to have two voices one that gathers the the sheep, one voice that sweetly calls the sheep back to their Savior, and the other voice that wards off the wolves and that warns the sheep of danger. We need both of those voices. It's why, like a father, we're to lead by example. Right? We need that example, too, that we're to exhort, we're to encourage, we're to charge to walk in the truth, he says in chapter 2, verse 12. So congregation, you know, this is just a great way to pray for your pastors here at UBC. There's a lot of wisdom, you know, who are parents and knowing, okay, when do you call your child back sweetly and when do you come a little more, more firmly? That's hard to know. It's the same when you're shepherding a congregation, when do you come in a little stronger, lean in a little harder, and when do you back off a little bit, recognizing the difficulty of a situation? Right? Pray for us. Pray that we would model both that tender love and that clear leadership and exhortation and care. Pray that would, that would mark Trey right, as he goes out to pastor, Lord willing, later this year in a church plant up in Bentonville. Pray it would mark those that we send out from here, those we raise up and those we send out as missionaries. They would have the same heart as Paul those supported workers we may send. Pray it would mark us in our parenting. Pray it would mark us even as we disciple one another. That same loving, care, leading, right? All of that needs to mark our own discipling. Truth exercising itself in love. It's not easy. We need one another's prayers. And so it's one of the reasons why I love how Paul prays at the conclusion of chapter 3. When he says, pray that our love would increase And abound for each other and all of you, so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, what are the telltale marks of faithful gospel ministry? In a season where the true hearts of many are being exposed, and where such exposure leads to great doubt and distrust in the gospel, how do you spot the real, authentic, genuine thing from the false thing? That's the question I set forward at the outset, and I think Paul is helping us see. You look for one committed to the gospel of God, for the pleasure of God, in a manner that is worthy of God. And when you find that, friends, you find a faithful guide pointing you towards heaven. Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you speak to us through your word. We give you praise for the way in which many whom your spirit has worked in help model that word for us. Oh, God, we pray as a congregation that the spiritual vitality of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those sons and daughters in the faith, God, we pray that our own hearts and passions and minds and prayers would be consumed for their well-being as it was for Paul's. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.